Thanks, Lawrence. It's great to be back with you all. It's uh, encouraging. Uh, I'll say a few notes, or a few things, comments on uh, the trip. Uh, first of all, I don't think the kids got tired of the snail pictures. Am I, am I right? <laughs> Those snails, so let me tell you a little bit about just like a, a daily experience. So I don't have my own room. We stayed at a, what's called a, uh, like a, a missionary guest house. And so I was sharing my room with Antonio. But when I travel, I don't know what it is, but I'm, I wake up sometime between 3 and 4 a.m., and um, I had no place to go. They, they lock the main house up, so you can't get in until breakfast. I don't have my own room. Uh, and so I had to go outside. And so at 3 a.m., I'm outside on this overhang because it's rainy season, and my goodness, the rains. Uh, so I'm out over, I'm on, I'm basically I'm on a porch with an overhang, and I'm just sitting there. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a challenge, and I'm fighting off mosquitoes. And then there are these, these snails. And it was just a, uh, a beautiful expression of, of God's beauty and in his creativity. I'd never seen a snail so big. So every time I saw a little bit different snail, I thought I would share it because I thought the kids would enjoy it. Uh, last Sunday, I preached in a tent. This is the church, one of the churches that we're working with. Uh, in Maputo, as a suburb of Maputo, the capital of Mozambique. And this is a church plant, maybe three years old, uh, pastored by a, a young man named Denisio. He's 30 years old. And, um, you know, I, this, this, the fact that we're meeting in the gym has been kind of a discouraging thing. And I, and I encourage you to continue to pray for our efforts to look for uh, a spot that maybe would be a little bit more permanent for us. So that's something that's, we're, that we're always praying for. But so I get there on Sunday, and it's hot already, and we're in a tent, uh, and there's no airflow until they opened up one of the sides. But then about, I don't know, about 30 minutes into my sermon, I was just kind of wrapping up, but I had a, I had a little while to go. The rains came, and the wind came, and the tent started to lift up on the ground. And we were just like, we're done. And then I turned to the pastor and said, we're done, right? Because we're not going to keep going on through this. And he said, yeah, we're done. So... That was it, but it, it, it made me extremely thankful. I mean, this is not ideal, and there are a lot of churches with great buildings. Some of you have been in churches with great buildings, and great buildings are great. Uh, we don't have a great building, but we have a dry building, and we have a building that will survive some wind, and um, we are blessed. We spend a lot of money as a church on efforts to help other people um, about equivalent to about half our budget we put into meeting pressing needs twin cities ministries some of these projects over here helping these these pastors get their churches established and leaders trained and so they can plant more churches so um i would much rather do this than have a, a great building um but i'm extremely thankful for what god provides for us because there are a lot of a lot of churches and a lot of people around the world that uh, aren't able to enjoy a place to come where they're dry and, and safe from the elements. Um, let me just pray really quick here before I start this sermon. It's great to be back. Um, I'm excited about this message. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for the uh, tremendous blessings that you pour out upon us in so many ways. And God, we know that, that ultimately in the end, everything on here, everything on earth is going to be... Um, eliminated and destroyed 
and recreated to something eternal. And so, God, we, we acknowledge the great blessings that you provide in all of the material things that we're able to enjoy, and we do enjoy them. But, God, our hope is in heaven. Our hope is on the eternal kingdom. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, his work in us, his work through us by the power of the Spirit and the gospel. And so, God, I pray that as we continue to, to persevere in our walks before you, that you would give us the strength of mind and spirit and the, uh, the discipline in our lives to, to continue to have that focus. I pray, God, that my words today would reflect accurately your scripture, the word that you have given to us, and give honor and glory to you, and unify and strengthen us for the purposes that you've called us to. In your son's name we pray, amen. So my parents were raised Roman Catholic, and uh, some of you that grew up in a Roman Catholic tradition, uh, if they were serious, and a lot of them are, uh, had a strong um, guilt and this always present sense of judgment. And my folks came to Christ, began to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the message of salvation from the judgment of God uh, by the grace of God through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And so my, my parents, after some time, came to an understanding of that, of that message, and, and, we, and we left the Catholic Church, and we joined others who were coming out of uh, Catholicism, a lot of relatives and friends of my, of my folks. Um, and so we left that tradition but as, as you know, um, it takes a long time to change our habits and our patterns of thinking and patterns of believing. And um, the, the always present sense of judgment and guilt was a strong dynamic uh, in my family. And the communication patterns uh, reflected that that sense of judgment and guilt. And, and I grew up with a, with a sense that I could never really ever please my parents or please God. And um, that's not good. It's not healthy. It's not, a, it's not a, a clear perspective of what the judgment of God is, why there is a need for judgment. Now, some of you may have grown up kind of on the other end of the spectrum, where God is a God of love, and there's never a need to worry about him thinking ill of you or passing judgment on you. He just loves everybody. You can believe what you want. You can do what you want, and God is just always loving, okay? Uh, that's not good either because that tends to lead towards licentiousness, which means you can just do anything you want to do because God doesn't have a care about it, and you're going to end up being an, an unjust person and hurting those around you. Others would turn the tables, as C.S. Lewis says, putting God in the dock. And he says this of modern time. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. The modern man is the judge. God is in the dock, or on trial. It's an English term for being on trial. Modern man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. 
The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and that God is in the dock. Now, I can't blame my parents for my experience because it really, that it took a long time, many years for me to come out of uh, this, this sense of, and, and kind of always looming gloom of, of judgment and displeasure over me. I can't blame my parents for that. I mean, they have some responsibility, but, but I am responsible uh, for what I believe. But there's also, there are also forces in the world, pressures in the world, uh, churches that we've grown up in, um, forces that are invisible. The scriptures speak of an invisible realm. Uh, the gospels are full of the dynamic that existed between Jesus and the demonic realm. And the prophets speak of a, a realm where there are um, angels on the, on the side of God and of Jesus Christ that are waging battle against the forces of darkness on in an invisible realm. And these, these invisible forces uh, have a way, all right, it's mysterious, but they have a way of influencing our thoughts. We have a flesh, and the flesh has been uh, highly influenced and patterned according to these evil demonic forces the scriptures teach us. Um, and we grow up with that, and it, it trains our flesh, it trains our bodies. And so our bodies and our minds um, and our thoughts and our beliefs are all this, this jumbled mess of things. And the, the power of the gospel is in its ability to transform our minds as well as the spiritual regeneration of our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But the, the gospel has a place in renewing and refreshing our minds. And so we have that responsibility. We cannot blame our, our parents. We cannot blame uh, our churches. We have the word of God. It has been revealed to us. And, and we have to develop a healthy sense of the judgment of God. It is a real thing. It is an important thing. And so what I want to talk about today uh, really are, are the answers, the ideas surrounding three questions. What is the purpose of God's judgment? How does God judge? And how should we respond to the threat of God's judgment? What is the purpose of judgment? How does God judge? And how should we respond? So the first one, what is the purpose of God's judgment? So we see here in the book of Amos, and, and many people consider, many scholars consider the book of Amos to kind of wrap up all of the big themes that are present in the massive amount of literature that is known as the prophets. But we can see here just in, in, in Amos, all right, we, I think oftentimes we think of this general idea of God punishing sinners, right? And we, we, we don't then take it to the next level of exactly what is God punishing. But if we look at Amos, he is punishing economic oppression. He is punishing and judging sexual abuse. He is punishing and judging human trafficking. These are, the, these are the things that we've looked at in Amos that, that they are being indicted for um, because in their injustice. God is judging and bringing punishment upon the, the neglect of the poor and the needy. And God is judging and punishing for idolatry and hypocrisy. The idolatry being um, an excuse 
of worshiping something that permits them to engage in the injustice. There was a, uh, a story in the Atlantic Monthly a couple of years ago where uh, a, a young girl, five years old, and she's telling the story as an adult. And her mom had a, had a boyfriend that would abuse her in all sorts of ways when her mom would leave. And she had a faith as a five-year-old and would pray, God, do something about this abuse. Save me from this harm. And for a long time, nothing happened. And she said that she finally came to the conclusion that God did not exist, and because God did not exist, he was never going to answer her prayers. And so that's what gave her the the strength or energy to actually then go tell somebody and so she lost her faith because the people responsible for her care were not executing the justice needed and we do have a question that we're going to address at the end a little bit more but we have to ask the question or the world asks the question and puts god on trial for really what is um, a mystery. Why doesn't God stop and end injustice of such magnitude? Why doesn't God stop the disease and famine and human trafficking and all of the harm that those things bring to um, innocent young victims? Those are that's, it's a it's a hard question, and. The Bible has answers for it, and the gospel has an answer for it, but they're not necessarily super satisfying. I mean, I've been preaching and teaching for over 20 years, and I I would say that I I know the Bible reasonably well, Um, and this is a, a hard question to answer but I I think that there's some things that we can come to that provide some perspective and again we're going to come to it a little bit later so God is is active in punishing these things he is he is not standing by idly sometimes it may seem like it but he's not and he did bring justice to Israel for their injustices, for these things, for the neglect of the poor, for human trafficking, for sexual abuse, for economic oppression. He did bring judgment to them. And he's always brought judgment. It just, it takes longer, according to our minds. He also punishes and judges in an effort to restore his creation to its intended state. He asks the question of of Israel, do horses run on rocks? It doesn't make any sense for the world to exist in a state of injustice. Do oxen plow rocks, he asks? No, obviously, that's a hypothetical question with the obvious answer of no. No. So it cannot continue. It seems to go on for a lot longer than we would be happy with. But God is not satisfied with leaving his creation to the uh, endless and unfettered 
efforts of evil. He will extend justice to bring creation back into his intended order. And a third and really significant reason for justice is, it, is to draw people to return to him. Judgment is not the end goal. God does not delight in judgment for judgment's sake. And when I was young, and until I kind of got my head around some of these things, <clears throat> my perspectives almost, I would, I would say that there is an aspect, it seemed to me that there was an aspect of God enjoying punishing and judging us. And I had that opinion because it seemed like if he didn't enjoy it, why would he always be doing it? Because I always felt this weight of judgment. Come to find out that that was, I was believing a lot of lies about God that reinforced that sense of God's displeasure, constant displeasure with me. God does not delight in judgment. He says here in the book of Amos, next chapter, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord being the final day of judgment, the pouring out of God's wrath. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a, lying, a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? This is God talking about the day of the Lord that he has set aside for the, the full expression of his wrath and judgment upon the evils of the world. God is not looking forward to this. God does not enjoy this. This is not something that God delights in. I don't know if some of you have had or are in a place where you still, still feel like the judgment of God is continually on you. It is not God's intent for you to be always under a sense of his judgment. And it is not God's intent for, well, it's not God's intent to delight in it. It's not God's intent to delight in it. But he uses it to draw people to return to him. He uses it. He uses punishment and he uses suffering for us in our lives to be disrupted, for us to, st to stop what we're doing, the injustices that we are engaged in, the idolatries that we are engaged in. He uses suffering to return us to a place where we acknowledge that he is our God and he is our creator and we owe our lives to him. And so that we can get back into a place of blessing and out of the place of judgment. And so that leads then to the next question. Well, then how does God judge? And the first thing that we see here in chapter 4 is that the judgment of God gradually gets worse. The judgment of God gradually gets worse. He doesn't begin with the, 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 the full weight of his wrath. The progression here, they undergo some bread and some food shortages. Not complete famine, just some shortages. Then there's some shortages of rain, and so the, the, the lack of food and the lack of water grows. Then there are diseases and locusts affecting, again, their food. Pestilence, insects, and then comes war. 
And the emptying of their assets and the extreme discomfort that comes with a lot of dead bodies laying on the ground and the stench and the smell of warfare and of dead people. Then there is the random destruction of entire cities. And then he says finally at the end, and all the way through, after each one of these descriptions, there are seven of them. There are seven judgments. And if you look in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, God says, listen, if you don't follow me and do these things, I'm going to bring this punishment. And there's like ten things. Because it's, it's, we can get worse and worse and worse, and God's punishment will get more and more and more until we decide to turn back. But Israel never turned back. And so God says this. He says, literally, you better be prepared to meet your God because that's where we're at. I am going to bring complete destruction upon you. And so it is, it is right to feel a sense of God's displeasure and judgment of you if you are engaged in evil. If you are engaged in evil. And I like the full spectrum that, that Amos represents. It's a full spectrum of sin. It's, it's some white-collar crime. It's sexual immorality. It's deception. It's, gre- it's the full gambit of sins. It's the full gambit of sins. And if you are actively engaged in those things and running away from God, you should feel the weight of guilt. You should feel the weight of guilt. Because ultimately, and I I hope that, that we've been successful, Lawrence and I, as we looked at the last four weeks, I hope it's been successful where we've demonstrated that injustice and sin of any type is not just an offense against God, it somehow leads to injustice and the abuse of other people. It hurts other people. And that's a huge reason why God stops it. So it's gradual. The next thing is that it's some, some of these are passive. He withdraws. Okay? He gives us all these things in the first place. Water, clothing, food, shelter, peace, security. He gives us these things. So he just decides, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull back. I'm going to pull back on the things that I'm giving so that they begin to recognize perhaps that I am the one that gives these things. So he's passive, but then he's also, and you see this towards the end when things are a little bit more serious, he's active. I will bring pestilence. I will bring the sword. I will inflict this. And so sometimes God just pulls back the graces that he extends to all humanity. I mean, the the scriptures teach that Jesus sustains and holds together everything everything there's nothing that holds together outside of the power of jesus and so sometimes jesus withdraws a little bit of his sustaining power in our lives in order for us to suffer and then sometimes god initiates and brings discipline and brings us into places and does things in and around us and to us to inflict suffering and pain like when we were young if you grew up in a household where your parents uh, spanked you, all right? Some kind, sometimes God takes us to the woodshed. Sometimes God inflicts pain upon us intentionally. It's not a bad thing. Because the ultimate goal that God has is for us to recognize that the happiness and the joy and the delight that he intends is from him. 
And if we continue down the path of evil, we're going to continue to hurt others and hurt ourselves. And God cannot allow that to continue. He is a just God. He is a just God. Sometimes it seems like he may be singling you out. There's a, one, of the, one of the judgments here in this passage says that sometimes I let rain fall on that city and sometimes I withdrew rain from another. And so you'd be sitting in one city in the Israel and it's like, you know, the city right next door, they got rain. Why didn't we get rain? And so you, you begin to feel like uh, things are against you in a way that are outside of natural circumstances. And that may be God. It may not just be coincidence. If you've got some suffering in your life, and you know that there is ongoing sin that you're not repenting from, it may be God singling you out and saying, you better change because I am, I am looking at you and I'm on it. I know what you're involved in. God does work at that level of individual pursuit. Eventually, eventually God's judgment gets to a place where repentance is not possible. Pharaoh got to this point where God was calling on him to repent through the voice of Moses and Aaron, and then it, and it, and then it got to a point where God would say, okay, his injustice against my people has been so horrible that I'm not going to let him repent now. I think there were five or six more warnings to go, five or six more plagues. And then, then God switched and said, you know what, now I'm going to use Pharaoh as an example. I have a friend who, whom the, the IRS did this to. <laughs> he was not paying his taxes. And he was using some fancy schemes. And he owed a lot of taxes, $750,000 in back taxes. And he is a long story. But they came to him for several years. You're listening to some people that don't know what they're talking about in terms of tax law. Uh, you're listening to some people that have been thrown in jail. You need to pay these taxes. And he wouldn't listen. And then he kind of got to a point where like, whoa, wait a minute. I am in deep trouble here. And then he went back to the IRS and said, hey, I, I want to get this cleaned up. And they wouldn't listen to him. And they let it go on for several more years so the fines would pile up. By the time it was done, his $750,000 in back taxes turned into $4 million. So sometimes, and, and I don't know. Eh, I shouldn't even comment. Sometimes, and it's hard for us, we, we can't, I, we cannot say this about other people. God has to work in our consciences. But sometimes, um, God, we get to a point where it would be incredibly difficult for us to repent, if not impossible. Now, those are unique examples. And the scriptures teach also that if you are alive... <laughs> That if you are still alive, there's an opportunity for repentance. But you can get to a point where your heart and your conscience are so hardened and so bitter that it would, it would literally take a miracle of God and a complete submission of your will to him. 
How should we respond then to the threat of God's judgment? I think the first thing, at the end of the passage, verse 13, for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind, okay, so the things that are seen in all of their grandness, that we have no way, you know, when I was, when I was flying back from, from, uh, from Africa, you just look out over the horizon from the air, and it is so vast, and you see mountains, and you're just like, there is a God who created this, and I am so small. I am so small. He forms the visible, the invisible, creates the wind. He declares to man what is his thought. He knows our minds. He makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts. Literally, Yahweh is his name. Yahweh, the God of hosts. Literally, I am. I am is the name of God. I am. I am eternally existent. I am eternal in power. I am eternal in what I see, past, present, future. I am eternal in what I can do. That is God. And we have to get to a point where that is what we've got to do to respond to what we believe to be the judgment of God. Behold God. You are going to die someday. And you are going to behold God. You will meet your maker. Literally, he says, prepare to meet your maker, Israel. And so he calls us, prepare to meet our maker, behold God. And then he says, return to me. Come back to me. Come back to me as one of my children. Seek me and live. Pursue me. Don't pursue injustice. Don't pursue greed. Pursue me. Pursue life. Seek to do good. Seek to establish justice in the gates. No longer do evil. And so we have here in God, and this is what I never really grasp. I mean, you know, I would memorize John 3, 16. I could, I, could, I, I could mentally affirm the gospel because my parents came out of it through the gospel. But the character of our, of, and spirit of our understanding of what it meant to walk and follow God was still largely shaped by the, the guilt and the judgment and the condemnation of our Catholicism. And it took a long time. It took a long time for us to really see that judgment is not the end game, but judgment is a means for us to enter into the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. Only God can judge and remain in judgment. Psalm 51, one of my favorite passages of all scripture it's 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 david's prayer after he committed adultery with bathsheba the wife of uriah and then killed uriah to hide his crime because he got bathsheba pregnant and he's he's yearning he is he is yearning and seeking for god and he says this only you god have i sinned against only you can stand in judgment of me you killed somebody and you committed adultery. What are you talking about? We, we have to understand that we can never, as people, be in a place of judgment of others. And this, is, and this is where we begin to answer these challenging questions about why does God's justice take so long? We cannot put ourselves into a place of judgment because if we do, we would have to judge ourselves. We are all perpetrators of evil. We are all perpetrators of injustice. 
maybe at various levels, but our sins hurt and offend others. You know, I built one of those little free libraries with Alicia for a school project last fall. We put it out in our yard, and Gabe came back from walking the dog yesterday, and somebody had ripped the door off of our little free library. No big deal, right? But I was angry. It's going to take two or three hours to rebuild the door, repaint it, reattach it. I, I could just imagine some, some person just coming by, opening the door, and just ripping it off. And you know, the, the deal isn't the door. It may be $10 in wood that I have to buy to replace it. But that's not the problem. But what, is, what was infuriating, and this is the infuriating thing of sin, even little things. It is an act. Our, our sins against God and our sins against people are acts of arrogance in declaring that we have power and authority over others to do what we want to do to them without regard for who they are. That's what angered me about that door. That somebody actually felt that they had the right to do that to something that they did not own. And that's what we do when we sin. We are not ourselves, and other people are not them. We are all creations, beautiful creations of God. And when we sin, we are violating. We are violating God's beautiful creation, something that he has taken the time and the mind and the energy and all of his resources, resources that humanity cannot even begin to gather up. And we have offended him. And so God sees these horrendous acts of injustice against the, 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 the most innocent and weak of all victims, but he sees all sin, and it is all a violent offense to him. And so when we ask, when we ask for justice, immediate justice in the face of outrageous sin, and if we want it immediate, we would have to, we would have to be ready for God to judge us. And that's why God withholds his judgment. He is, he, he, he longs for justice, but his, his love is greater. And mercy triumphs over judgment. And he is waiting, because if he was to inflict his judgment upon all of the things that deserved it to stop all the suffering, the world would be wiped out. The world would be wiped out, and we would be wiped out. And so we all long for it, and it's coming. It's coming. And we're all, we all should expect it. But this is the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel. There is always a way with God to escape his judgment. There is always a way with God. We can return to him. We can seek him. 
And the end of the book of Amos, which we started off the series on here, is this, this beautiful picture of the coming king of David who is going to restore all of God's creation to be a place of justice. But before he comes back as king to rule, he had to solve the problem of sin. He had to pro solve the problem of all of the injustices that have ever been committed on the face of the earth. What is he going to do about that? We're not universalists in that God's just going to kind of wipe it all away. The scriptures teach that Jesus did, that his, that his death on the cross did pay for the sins of the world. But the scriptures teach that to enter into that freedom from judgment, to enter into that peace, to enter into that forgiveness, there needs to be an acknowledgement of your need for that grace, which means that you, be, you started off with an acknowledgement of the need or of the, of, of the judgment that you deserve. If you don't have a sense of the judgment that you de deserve, you'll never have an appreciation for the grace that has been given to you. And so there has to be an acknowledgement that Christ Jesus himself took that penalty of judgment that everybody deserved upon himself. That's why the sky went black. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, the eternal unity that existed between the God the Father and God the Son was broken. And for the first time, Jesus Christ experienced the full wrath and separation from God. And he sensed it. Why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus has taken that judgment for us. Jesus has taken that judgment. And Israel had the same message of the gospel preached to them. Not all the details, but they knew that God was a means of forgiveness through the sacrifice and the shedding of blood. And it seems like it's too good of a story. I was on the plane from Arkansas a few weeks ago. And I'm not one of these guys that like tries to share the gospel with everybody that's sitting next to me on a plane. Really, I'd rather just put my headphones on and fall asleep or read a book because just, it's just kind of awkward and people don't generally like that. But I got on the plane, I sat down, and, and my, you know, I have these headphones for the noise canceling and they're powered and they don't work if something, it, it, they, they were broken. My headphones were broken. I had just used them. And the guy next to me, his, his video player wasn't working. This is a two and a half hour flight from Atlanta to the cities. And then, um, and, and we just, for some reason, just got into some small talk. And so then I'm like, and then I just felt this weight. George, you should share the gospel with this guy. And I'm like, oh no, is this the Holy Spirit? I haven't done this in a long time with a guy on a plane. I can't even remember the last time. This is weird and awkward to do this. But we just started talking and got to know his background. He got to know mine. And he, and he asked me, why did you become a minister? Because he, he had said, he had said that he had, he had uh, looked at a lot of religions when he was in college. And he grew up uh, Lutheran. Um, but he's got kids now, so that some of these ideas are starting to click around, and he wants to take his kids back to church. But he's rejected Christianity because he, he just, he said, you know, it seems just so, it's such a ridiculous concept that somebody that's lived a life of sin for their entire life 
can at the end of their life just believe the gospel and then they're saved. I said, well, <laughs> that's true, but that is, not, <laughs> that is not the whole gospel. That is not the whole gospel. God works in the hearts and minds of people in bringing them to a place of conviction and sin. So he asked me, he said, why did, you, why did you become a Christian and then go into the ministry? I said, because I experienced the grace of God in my life in erasing guilt and shame and judgment. And that freedom, that freedom is what I wanted to share with others. And I told him that I was going to go into aerospace engineering. I said, the freedom of helping people through the gospel overcome the guilt and shame of sin was far more attractive to me than developing planes and missiles that would kill people. I never got his name or his contact info, but he's a guy I pray for now. But it is an incredible story. When we consider the evils that we engage in, and not just ourselves, but the whole world and throughout all history, yes, the blood of Jesus Christ as the Son of God does satisfy the wrath of God and does enable us to enter into a place where those sins have been washed away and the feelings of guilt and shame and fear are also washed away. And if we didn't have judgment and the, the work of the Spirit to bring us to a place where we, we recognized our sin and our, that we deserved judgment, we couldn't come to a place of, of warmly and wholeheartedly receiving the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray.